Well, first, as Matt alluded to, I wanted to uh, bring you some information in regards to the vote of affirmation that we did last week. We were really encouraged by your response. We didn't know how that would work out as we send out an email. We've never done that before. We usually are here in person when we do that, and so thank you for your response. We had an overwhelming response of people who sent in their vote of affirmation, and with that, we had an overwhelming vote of affirmation for Doug McAlpine to serve as the next elder on our elder team. So, Doug, welcome. Thank you. Uh, we look forward to serving alongside each other and uh, continue that friendship that we have always shared into the context of uh, serving as an elder. So very, very grateful for that. And thank you for just your willingness to do something different than we've done before and to be faithful to that because uh, uh, that's part of how the Lord speaks through our church and we're grateful that you uh, did that. Uh, this morning we're going to begin a new series entitled Life-Changing Encounters with Jesus. In this series, we're going to examine different New Testament characters and kind of a before and after of that moment when they first met Jesus. We'll consider those life-changing impacts right alongside some of the stories that exist within our own church family. All throughout the summer, different individuals will be sharing their life-changing moment with Jesus and the difference that He continues to make in their life. So this is going to be a blessing, I promise. I look forward to all that God has in store, and I know that what you hear will be significant um, in the life of our church. So with that in mind, let me pray for us, and we'll go to the Lord together in His Word. Father, as we come to Your Word, we want to do so with humble and open hearts. We want to not only hear from how you worked in the lives of people during the New Testament when you lived and your ministry took place, but also we want to hear those same stories of how your ministry continues to take place even in our world today. And that people's lives have been and will continue to be changed because of your promise to be with us and to pursue us. And as we sang this morning, to come to us and to be faithful to those who come to you. So Lord, as we come to you this morning and open up your word, would you speak truth into our lives in life-transforming ways? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to begin this morning looking at the life of Nicodemus. A familiar story, but hopefully you'll see it with a fresh set of eyes this morning. So Nicodemus chapter 3, if you want to, begin reading with me in verse 1. John writes and says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him, came to Jesus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So in these first two verses, we have a lot of information. We learn about this man and his name and also his role. His name is Nicodemus. His role is that of a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he was deeply respected during that culture at that time. Now, that's hard for us because now when we read about Pharisees in the Bible, we have kind of a negative expectation. But that wouldn't have been true for them. They were highly esteemed as trained teachers and faithful observers of the Jewish law. But not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, John goes on to describe him as a ruler of the Jews. And that's important because not all the Pharisees were necessarily rulers. 
this is more than just a, a, a just a description here. What it's describing is that he was a member of a 70-member team of men known as the Sanhedrin. They were kind of like our American Supreme Court. These were judges who stood before the people and made decisions that influenced the, the life of the Israelites during that time. So as we can see here, Nicodemus was not your average Jew. He was a prominent man a leader in that culture who goes to speak with Jesus at night. We need to understand that this designation is more than just the time of of day. This whole passage will overlay both physical and spiritual realities as it describes what is happening at the time. On one hand, Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night because he does not want to be noticed in the light of day. Nicodemus is curious but he also has to be cautious because Jesus has created quite a stir and as a result, he's become somewhat controversial. And so Nicodemus has to be careful. He has a reputation to to protect. So he has to be careful as he goes to satisfy his curiosity. But in the Bible, darkness has other meanings as well. John describes Jesus at the beginning of this gospel as the light of men. That's how he describes Jesus. And then he goes on and says, this light, Jesus shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so in the Bible, darkness is often used to represent unbelief. And so what this tells us is that Nicodemus is curious about Jesus, but he's not yet convinced about Jesus. He's still operating in the darkness of unbelief. But he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, We know that you came from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. In this initial exchange, Nicodemus approaches Jesus with some level of respect. He calls him rabbi. In one sense, he kind of lifts Jesus to his level and essentially says, hey, from one rabbi to another, can we have a conversation? And I believe that God's Spirit is already at work in the heart of Nicodemus because he understands, as he says, that God is with him. Unlike many of his peers, Nicodemus cannot deny the evidence of divine approval. It just doesn't fit within his paradigm of understanding. So to his credit, he has the courage to go and speak with Jesus and learn for himself. Look at how it continues in verse 3 of that passage. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born, can he? What I find interesting here in this initial exchange is that Nicodemus didn't say anything about the kingdom of God, did he? And yet, Jesus seems to indicate that that's what was on the back of his mind. Because Nicodemus didn't stop Jesus and say, hey, wait a second, I didn't say anything about the kingdom of God. That's not what I meant. No, instead of arguing that point, he's confused about how he can get into the kingdom of God because clearly that's why he had come to Jesus in the first place. I believe that the signs that Nicodemus noticed that he mentions to Jesus were signs of the kingdom, and he knew it. But he needed to learn more. 
So Jesus tells Nicodemus what he really came to hear. He told him how to enter the kingdom of God that has now come. But it made no sense to Nicodemus. <laughs> because Jesus said that he must be born again. And, G and Nicodemus says, Jesus, that's just not possible. How can a grown man enter into his mother's womb and be born again? That makes no sense. It's absolutely impossible. Look at how Jesus answers that question beginning in verse 5. Jesus answered us, And truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? In order to enter the kingdom, Jesus says, You must be born of the water and the Spirit. And I believe these two things are deeply connected to one another. Because entering the kingdom is ultimately about what it means to enter into a relationship with God. Jesus is leading unbelieving Nicodemus to a place of faith. But in order to get there, he says that there are two important things that must take place. One involves water. The other involves the Spirit. And I believe more specifically, he's talking about repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. See, part of the curiosity about Jesus, both for Nicodemus and pretty much everyone else at that time, was being stirred up by John the Baptist. He was baptizing people in preparation of the coming Messiah. It was a baptism, as we know, of repentance. A baptism of repentance. Where people admitted their need for a Savior. His message was very clear when he preached that baptism. He says, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Knowing this, I believe Jesus validated what Nicodemus knew that John was preaching. He's telling Nicodemus, John's right. Salvation begins with repentance. Until you see your need for a Savior, you will not find salvation. Salvation comes from a repentant heart, but it also, must, it also requires the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus explains. He says, you must, what is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, mankind is born in sinful flesh and powerless to break free. We see that clearly in Ephesians 2.3, where it says we live in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We are born in the flesh that is ruled by sin. And only God's Spirit can bring new life. Jesus explains it. He says it's like the, the wind. The, the evidence of the wind is seen by, by its effect. We know that well in this part of the country. When it's a windy day outside, we don't see the, the, the wind moving through the air. We see its effect, right? We see the leaves moving in the trees. We see the dust that's kicked up off the ground. Then we know it's windy. We don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but we know that it exists by what we can see. In a similar way, we see the work of the Spirit through eyes of faith. 
And that Spirit's work is made visible through transformed lives. That's the effect. When you see transformed lives, you know the Spirit is at work. And when Nicodemus hears all this, he says, how can these things be true? Now, I want you to understand that Nicodemus is a very smart man. He knows the Old Testament better than most. And he's trying to make a connection between what Jesus is doing and saying and what he knows to be true in the Old Testament Scriptures. And I believe that's his motivation for even having the conversation with Jesus is he's trying to connect what he knows to be true in the Old Testament with what Jesus is saying and doing in the world at that time. And what Jesus is saying sounds a lot like the kingdom language of the Old Testament. That's why he's curious. And I wonder if he might have even been thinking about the prophet Ezekiel. Because I want you to listen to what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. Maybe this is what caught Nicodemus' attention. Especially in light of what Jesus just said. Listen carefully. God speaking said, as the kingdom comes, that I will take from, you, from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone with a heart of flesh and, and, and make it soft and, and receptive. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my commandments. And you will live in the land I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. I think when Nicodemus asked the question, can this be true? I think he's wondering, can it be true that what the prophets proclaimed is now taking place through the ministry of Jesus Christ? Can it be true? I want you to listen to how Jesus continues in verse 10 of our passage. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one is ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, the promised Messiah. And as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. See, I believe that Jesus is pushing Nicodemus toward the Old Testament promises that he knows to be true. He's trying to help him make the connection. He wants him to hear that, that, that these divine truths and to know that, that they're being spoken from the one who was divinely ordained. The one who brings heavenly truths into an earthly reality. The one whose purpose was pictured in the life of Moses. And he speaks specifically of an event where Moses lifted up the serpent on a staff in the wilderness. That event took place in Numbers 21. In that chapter, we see that Israel's heart has grown hard and rebellious. They would not repent before the Lord. In fact, they were complaining that life was so bad in the wilderness, they just wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. And so, 
God sends poisonous snakes as a judgment for their sinful rebellion. And everyone bitten by these snakes would most certainly die, and many did. To the point that in their desperation, they cried out to Moses for him to save them. They said, pray to God that he may take these serpents from us. And I want you to know that, that God did not take the serpents away. They remained in the midst of the people, but he did give them a solution. God instructed Moses to create a serpent made of bronze and to put it on the end of his staff and to lift that high into the air so that when people looked upon the serpent, even though they had been bitten by the snake and the poison run through their veins, that they would be healed in that moment through faith. In Jesus' sense, in the same way, the Son of Man, that promised Messiah, will be lifted up as well. And all those who are dying from the poison of sin can be healed when they look upon Him. The judgment would not be removed, but there would be a solution in the midst of it if they were willing to believe. Look at how he continues in verse 16. Jesus goes on and says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but for the world to be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because we were born in sin. Because He has not believed in the Son of the only begotten God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. As we see here, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness, both spiritually and physically. And yet, in that reality, God is inviting Nicodemus to live in the light. Repent and believe. Look upon the one who would be lifted up so that you might find healing and forgiveness in him. The poison of sin is a certain death, but forgiveness in Christ brings healing and hope. For whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the promise. Now, as we think about the words that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, we know that much of what he's talking about is yet to come, right? When the Son of Man would be lifted up on the cross. But we know that it got Nicodemus thinking because he continues to ponder what Jesus told him in that secret encounter. We get a picture of that in John chapter 7. So if you would, turn to John chapter 7 with me. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 40. And I want you to understand, by this time, that controversy created by Jesus has only increased. So much so that he has become the talk of the people, and they're trying to figure out who this man is. So that in verse 40, it says, Some of the multitude, therefore, were heard these things and were saying, Certainly, he is a prophet, speaking of Jesus. Others were saying, This is the Christ. This is the promised Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee, is he? 
Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is the Sanhedrin. And they said to the Sanhedrin, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, or the Sanhedrin asked the officers, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, you've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? In other words, if we don't believe as experts of the law, then neither should you. Continues in verse 49, But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, he who came to him before being one of them. Verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's saying, does it? They answered and said to Nicodemus, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own home. When we read this encounter, we need to understand that Nicodemus has made a bold move. The religious leaders are growing in their opposition against Jesus. And yet, in the midst of that opposition, Nicodemus continues to grow in his interest about who this man is. He tells his peers, the least we can do is hear the case, right? We're judges. And you don't judge a case without giving it a trial and letting the man speak. But those in the Sanhedrin were not interested in learning more. They had made up their mind without considering any of the facts. In fact, they were looking for a reason not to believe, which was the only things they could see. They said, where does the Old Testament tell of a prophet that comes from Galilee? After all, Galilee was a place of ordinary people. This statement made by these religious leaders is filled with pride, with arrogance, and with prejudice. They're essentially saying, Galilee is populated by farm boys and lowly people who do manual labor. What do they know about the law? We are the experts in the law. If anyone knows the truth, it's us. But their arrogance is filled with ignorance, as it always, always is. Jesus was not born in Galilee. He was raised in Galilee. But He was born in Bethlehem. And if they would stop long enough, they could see that the promised Messiah was said to be born in Bethlehem out of the line of David. If they looked long enough, if they just considered the facts, they would find Jesus. But this was not a topic they were willing to discuss. It says that everyone went to their own home. In other words, we're not going to talk about this anymore. But I believe the truth continued to stir in the heart of Nicodemus. And at some point during this process, he came to a place of faith. And the reason I believe that's true is because of John chapter 19. So if you would, turn there with me. John chapter 19. Now what has taken place by this time is that Jesus has been wrongly accused and murdered through the crucifixion. And all this has taken place. He has died on the cross. And beginning in verse 38 of chapter 19, it says, And after these things... Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate 
that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pounds weight, so that they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I don't know when it happened. Maybe it happened the moment that Jesus was lifted up high on the cross. And he thought of the words that Jesus spoke to him in that secret conversation. Likely a a conversation that Nicodemus never forgot. Because it was in that conversation that Jesus invited Nicodemus out of the darkness and into the light. Jesus invited Nicodemus to repent and to believe. And by all accounts, Nicodemus did. Because in this moment, Nicodemus walks out of the shadows with another secret disciple that we learn is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And these two men did what no one else was willing to do, including Jesus' own disciples. They gave Jesus a burial fit for a king. They were no longer hiding in shame or in secret. They were walking in the light. They were no longer pretending to be righteous. They were looking for a Savior. They decided it was worth it to be different because of the difference that Christ made in their life having fulfilled what the Scriptures said would be true. They decided to follow Christ no matter what the cost may be. But I want you to know they're not the only ones who have made that decision. There are many others since that day who have decided to put their faith in Christ. And one of those people you're going to hear from this morning. So, Corn, if you want to go ahead and come up, you're going to get a chance to hear from Corn Gilbert and her story of coming out of darkness and now walking boldly in the light. So, Corn, thanks for sharing your testimony. Good morning. I'm Corin Gilbert, and I'm very thankful that I get to share my story with you all this morning. Um, I have gone to Melanie Park for my whole life, and I'm so glad that I had a church like this to be raised up in. I grew up in a Christian home, and I accepted Christ when I was little. I was probably around seven, and I remember that it kind of took me a while to fully understand what I was doing. Um, I do believe that the Holy Spirit was drawing me in and helping me through things at that time. But as I have continued to learn how to walk with Christ, I have realized that I can be selfish and focused only on the things that I want or the things that make me feel good. As the Lord keeps loving me through those times, and as I learn how to walk with Him, I have grown in my faith over time. Growing up, I was also super blessed. I had an amazing family, amazing friends, and obviously an amazing church. My parents, Carrie and Sherry, they are the best. They are so encouraging, and they have always reminded me that they love me, but that more importantly, the Lord loves me even more. My brother, Cade, is my best friend. We have always been super close, and he is probably one of my favorite people on this earth. My grandparents have also played a major role in my life. They are supporting me at every single thing I do. 
If, it is, if it's an event, they're usually an hour or two early so that they can get the best seats. <laughs> My grandmother, as some of you know, has MS, which is multiple sclerosis, and has taken her ability to walk, feed herself, and just do everyday things that she desires to do. Even through all of that, she is by far one of the most positive people I know. She is always smiling, and she never complains about the situation that she is in every day. She is simply joyful because she has the Lord and her family around her, which I look up to so much. Although I have been blessed growing up, there still are many things that I struggle with in my walk with Christ. One thing that I have always kind of struggled with is where my identity lies. I have always known that my identity was in the Lord, but in the back of my mind there was always something that had my focus and attention more than the Lord did. Being in a 6A public high school, there are so many expectations for who you're supposed to be. Whether that's in your academics or just in the sport that you play, it's so competitive. So just getting into high school, a lot of things changed and a lot of things got harder. I would find myself putting my identity in volleyball and how well I played or if I was the best, academics and how my grades ranked compared to others, and the relationships that I was in and how well I was liked. All of these things that I put my identity in might have seemed important in that moment, but really didn't matter in the scheme of eternity. These things that I found my identity in also had the ability to disappear fast. This past year has been one of the hardest for me, and I had no choice but to follow the Lord and put my identity and faith in Him. I no longer had volleyball to put my identity in. I no longer had all of those friends to put my identity in. I no longer had all of those things that seemed so important to me that I put my worth in. That is something that I have really had to battle with and kind of just remember that my identity is in the Lord and not how talented or smart or beautiful I am. The part of my life that has tested my faith the most is just staying true to who I am in the Lord even when everyone and everything around me are telling me different. Getting into middle school and high school, the desire and the need to fit in with the crowd becomes more of a reality. Realizing that people that were on the same page as me are now no longer on that page is hard. It is challenging for people who put their faith and trust in the Lord to not be drawn to the world and all that it seems to offer. And it is something that I have had to struggle with. 1 John 2.16 says, For everything in this world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. I have seen people try to live a divided life based on the group that they were with, but they never seemed satisfied, and they always seemed empty. Scripture tells us that, apart from God, we can do nothing. Romans explains that before we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are slaves to sin. We have no ability to resist it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. So we are a new creation in Christ, and we are no longer slaves to sin. We now have power by the Holy Spirit to resist sin and live in righteousness. I am trying to live in righteousness according to his will. However, there have been many times where people will give me a hard time or make fun of me because of what I believe and how I carry myself. I started to get a lot of criticism for who I was, and sometimes that would make me want to give up who I was to fit in. I started not being invited to anything and not being told anything because I was the innocent girl that wouldn't understand. I remember I was at one of my best friend's birthday parties a few years ago, and everyone else at the party were most of my closest friends. 
One girl that I had pretty much grown up with my entire life made a comment about who I was and said some pretty hurtful things about me. All of my other friends went along with her and laughed at the things she was saying about me. No one had the courage to stand up and ask why being a Christian was a bad thing, and neither did I at that moment. But at that moment in my life, I was at a crossroads. That was the night that I had to make a decision. I had to make the decision of whether I would take what they said and let it turn me into someone that I'm not and fall into this temptation of fitting in or stay true to who I was in the Lord. Yes, it was hard to not just cave in and follow along to what the world was doing around me, and I struggled with that for a long time. But making that ultimate decision to not be a follower of the world is something that has shaped me into who I am and made my faith stronger. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says that I should not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of my mind. Those experiences did lead to a lot of loneliness for a while, and I felt sad and lost for a long time. I would try to fill that loneliness with people I loved and things that made me happy in that moment, but those things didn't fill my loneliness. Through that, I learned that the only person that can fulfill that loneliness is the Lord, and he is the only one that can fulfill all of my needs. And no, just because I make that decision every day doesn't mean that people stop saying hurtful things to me and that everything got better. But I am learning to stand up for my faith and remember who I am in Christ. I have grown apart from many friends through high school. I wasn't cool enough for them anymore, and that hurts. Although this is our reality in our world today, through those experiences, I have stayed true to who I am in Christ. And I have gotten the opportunity to share why I choose to be the way that I am. Also, through those experiences, I have found some amazing relationships in this church, and I have kept some of the, the relationships that the Lord has put in my life. I'm thankful that I have these relationships. I think one thing that I've learned through high school has been that it is worth it to be different and be that person that people wonder about. They see your joy and they see that you're different and that could lead to sharing God's love with someone. I am loved by the Lord and he is using me everywhere I go. I have the opportunity to be a blessing so anytime I can, I should be that blessing. So yes, high school and life is hard, but I'm constantly learning how to be a blessing to others and use who the Lord made me to be in a good way. I definitely am not perfect at it, but the Lord has a plan for me. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 says that the Lord has a plan for me and that I need to call on him with my whole heart. He promises that if I seek him, I will find him. As seen in the life of Nicodemus that Todd taught us today, we don't need to hide our faith from others. In John 3:21, Jesus tells us to come to the light so that our works can be clearly seen as glorifying to God. Nicodemus went from seeking the Lord in darkness to boldly preparing his body for burial. My purpose on this earth is to share who he is and share his love, and I should never be ashamed to do that. I am so beyond blessed by the Lord and the people he has given me in my life, so I am thankful for the journey that the Lord is including me in. My encouragement to everyone would be to make the decision to be different. It will be hard, and I can't tell you how hard I've struggled through making that decision every day. But I have seen the results of trying too hard to fit in, and I've seen the emptiness in people after a night of fun that is expected to be fulfilling. We will never be satisfied in the temporary things of this world. The only thing that will ever give us true joy is the Lord. So I encourage you to stay strong in the Lord and make that decision to follow him every day. Thank you.
I've always said that uh, the most powerful message is that you will hear from this pulpit won't come from me. <laughs> so thank you, Corin, for doing that. You were so proud that you got through both services without crying, and I can't make it through one. In closing, I do want to encourage you with a couple of things, some questions that I would like for you to consider in light of our study of Nicodemus today. The first one is to take some time, and I would ask that you do it sooner than later. Don't put it off. Just make it a time of reflection. Maybe you can do it around the dinner table with your family, but I want you to look at 1 John, so John's first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And when you look at that passage, what you're going to find is a comparison and a contrast with darkness and light from one verse to the next. It'll speak about darkness, and then it'll follow it by light. And then it'll speak about darkness, and then it'll follow it by light. And I want you to ask yourself the question honestly. Which one describes me? Am I living in darkness, or am I walking in the light? And just take that before the Lord and be honest about what you see. Secondly, and related to that, where are you tempted to find your identity other than who you are in Christ? What... Corin talked about is you're not, not unique to Corin. Every person in this room seeks to find their identity in something or someone. And we are all distracted to find meaning and purpose outside of the only place that gives us meaning and purpose. So be honest about yourself and look at your life and determine are there places that you are seeking to find identity that will never be fulfilling because they are not found in Christ. And then lastly, what does it look like for you to come out of the shadows and boldly follow Christ? You see, that's part of the struggle that we're in our world, that's happening in our world today. We have too many Christians who live in the shadows, who know a lot about what the Bible says, who could quote Scripture right and left, but who rarely boldly proclaim those truths and how they live and what they say within a broken and sinful world. And so maybe part of the answer for every one of us in this room is to look in places that we need to step out of the shadows and start walking in the light. And so take some time to consider what that might look like for you. I want to urge you, please, don't show up every Sunday and hear the truths that are often repeated and then walk out of those doors completely unchanged. What a tragedy that would have been for Nicodemus who came to him in darkness with questions that were plaguing his mind, and what if he would have just let him go? But he kept pursuing. He kept seeking to learn and to understand by connecting what the Word had to say and what Jesus was doing. And in the end, he found that the Word was pointing to Jesus and that he was the single solution for the sin in his heart in the way that he was called to live. And I pray with all my heart, it would be true for every one of us. So with that, let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the time in your word and for the example of Nicodemus. Thank you for the honesty of coming in secret, in darkness, in the shadows of the night where his reputation could be protected, but still be curious about what Jesus had to say and do. But thank you, Lord, for the boldness that he had at one point or another to determine that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came to take away the sins of the world, and that there was no embarrassment or rebuke that he would ever receive that should stand in the way of following the one who came to set him free. 
And I pray that the same would be true for us. Thank you for Corin, Lord. Thank you for her sweet example of faith at such a young age. I pray that it emboldens every one of us, young and old, to make that commitment of faith to be different. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, to be different than what we see in the world around us, to walk out of the shadows and boldly walk in the light to the praise and glory of your name. And I pray that in somehow, somehow, in some way, that this morning, there would be those who would make that this moment of their decision right now to boldly walk in you because they trust in you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You would stay in your seats and the ushers will dismiss you from the back, but encourage you to talk and visit with each other while you can.